0: never heard you raise your voice higher than anything, man. That was great. I love it. That song is a great song, but it needs to be sung well, and he sang it well today. i tell you, that's good. Praise the Lord. Well, today we're going to be back in the book of Proverbs, and uh, we learn from the very beginning of Proverbs that Proverbs is uh, about the issues of life, and uh, up to this point, we have seen how that uh, all of the Proverbs will not only fit into our daily lives, but everything throughout life. And uh, we've also uh, looked at it from uh, the practical side, but then we've also, I I pointed out the doctrinal and the inspirational. I think that uh, those things are important to have a good balance. I I know of no other book, and I know I've said this many, many times uh, throughout the course of our study, but it bears saying again, I know of no other book in the Bible that does what Proverbs does. It forms for me, not only the foundation of the rest of the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, Proverbs uh, 12.10, where it talked about the righteous man regarded the life of his beast. And then I took you to Matthew 15 and showed you how that that sets up the whole uh, aspect of the New Testament teaching. So not only does it set up the foundation for the rest of the Bible, but it also sets up the foundation for uh, the rest of our lives because Proverbs 4.23 talks about that out of our heart, comes the issues of life, and uh, our heart needs to be where God uh, wants it to be. Now, today, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, and if you turn there with me, I would appreciate it, and we'll look at this. It says in verse 11, he that telleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. Verse 12 says, the wicked desireth the net of evil men, but the root of the righteous yieldeth fruit. Now, here's two verses that I think form a great example. You know, many times we'll read through the Bible, especially Proverbs and Psalms, but really anywhere in the Bible, and we'll see a verse kind of like this that you actually wonder, what can you get out of a verse like this? I don't mean to use these terms in a bad way, but uh, it, the verse seems mundane, it seems bland, it seems generic uh, in its, in its content and And many times when we read the Bible, you know we'll read a verse that when we look at it, we think it says, I grasp at it one, at one reading. you know it just says some general truth. but boy, you know yet as every verse in the Bible uh, you're going to find that verses like this are absolutely loaded. And uh, you, you have to really look at, uh, to see, uh, and, and kind of unearth some great principles here and have much to offer. Today we're going we're gonna to talk and we're going to use contrast when it comes to the Bible. And contrast in the Bible is one of the ways that God teaches you. Another way is association. God will teach you things in the Bible by the things that are the same, but then he'll teach you in the Bible by the things that are opposite or they're different. And uh, much of Proverbs that you'll find, as we've seen, will be built around contrast. Because uh, it's about the issues of life. And you know, life is a contrast. Life is a is an issue where you have good things you gotta deal with and you have bad things you gotta deal with. And life is a contrast. So the book about life is built on contrast. Let's open up with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into this verse here. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus We ask you today to give us wisdom and insight into all that we see and and endeavor to try to learn and do today. We do love you, Lord. And we ask you to forgive us where we failed you. Put us under the blood today that we might be able to receive the things that God uh, has for us in his word. And we'll thank you now and praise you for all we do. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, he says in verse 11 that he that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread but he that followeth vain person is void uh, of understanding. Now, there's a contrast for you. And uh, from a purely practical standpoint, it simply states that man will get his food by working. And uh, that principle goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 uh, and verse 15 and 19, when Adam and Eve fell from God's grace, and now they live in a world of, of, uh, of that we're in today with a curse on it. God told them that from this point on, he was going to have to go to work. And up to this point, God had everything prepared in a beautiful fashion. There was no work. There was no labor. Um, nothing they had to do except joy, the fellowship, and the beautiful creation that God had for them. Now suddenly it all changes. And he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly (coughs) multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying... Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And then he says in verse 19, and this is where we're at today, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return there's where you find the concept of working for a living. you know, any success in life will be simply determined by two things. The first thing will be your attitude. People with a good attitude usually wind up being successful in the things they try to do. The second aspect will be your work ethic. I think one of the problems that employers find today and trying to hire the generation that's out there today is the fact that they they don't have those two aspects. Their attitude is terrible, and they have a terrible work ethic. And I think that uh, if you just want to be successful in what you do, if you just want to get ahead in what you do, wherever you're working at, there's two things that you can improve so easily that will help you uh, get a better uh, situation at work, and that is your attitude about what you do and then your work ethic because we're living in a world today that that's a stark contrast. Nobody wants to work. Nobody has a good attitude about work, and everybody grumbles about it, And, uh, and I think that those are the two fundamental things, and it takes hard work today, and that's something that most generations, the young generations today don't understand. And, you know, along with that, in every society, especially in the society we live in today, you find people who just simply won't work, and they want to live off of everybody else. Now, I'm not against welfare, and I'm not against unemployment. I think when a man who works or a woman who works is legitimately out of work for uh, they're not their own fault, I I think it's a good thing to help them. (laughs) I think that they need to be helped and brought along. They've done a good job. They've worked hard. They're out of work because of no fault of their own. Maybe it's a downturn in the economy or, uh, you know, the place went under or whatever. And I think that welfare and employment are a good thing. And I don't have a problem with extending it uh, for a while and helping people out. I think they're good things. But you know as well as I do those things get abused. People taking advantage of the system. Welfare fraud is well over in this country, well over $2 billion a year, if not more. And you have people who won't work, and there will always be a burden to those that, that do the work. Where's, where's Nikki Brown at? She, you know, I, every time I, I tell this story, I think of Nikki. Nikki was working with a girl one day. You know Nikki. Nikki, what you see is what you get. And, and Nikki doesn't hold back much what she, what she thinks or what she says, which I, that, that's part of your charm. I love that. She was working with a gal one time, uh, and this gal, if I can use the word, was pretty worthless, pretty lazy. And she didn't work. Her husband didn't want to work hardly at all. And they they, they, they were not, they didn't have a very good work ethic, and they weren't, didn't have a very good attitude about things. But the one thing they got down was that verse in Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. It seems like when they don't get the work ethic verses down, they get that reproduction verse down. And she was telling, (laughs) she was (laughs) telling, she was talking about how great this free medical care she was getting was. That, you know what, it's all right to have children and all this when you don't work because the free Medicare and all the free medical stuff you get is just absolutely wonderful. And Nikki said, it isn't free. I'm paying for it. And that's the way it works in life. Uh, if so people won't work, somebody else has got to pick up the burden of it. And uh, there's nothing free when it comes to society. If somebody says, I'm not going to work, or somebody says, I'm lazy and don't want to work, somebody's going to have to pay for a society that feeds them and gives them what they want when they don't want to work. That's just, that's just the way it goes today. And along with Proverbs 12, twelve eleven, which is a great verse here, you have another verse in proverbs twenty eight nineteen that goes with this one, and it says in that verse, he that telleth it's almost exactly the same, it says that he that telleth his land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain person shall have poverty enough. Now in the Bible, these are called companion verses. Thursday night, you saw another example. Somebody asked a question about John 3.16, and I laid out John 3.16, and we all know John 3.16, but then I took it to the second John 3.16 in the Bible, which is in second John chapter 3, verse 16, and when you saw the comparison of the two verses, we're almost exactly the same, except the second verse added more insight and light into the first verse. And this is what you have. And these verses are very important. Here's one verse that says one thing, and then you get the companion verse that says almost exactly the same thing, but a few things are changed, and it sheds light on the first verse. This is how the Bible interprets itself when the Bible says that the Bible's of no private interpretation when Peter wrote that. And getting both verses together will give you a great principle for life. And then also a great principle for your spiritual life and your relationship with God and his word. Now, when it comes to your Christianity, <clears throat> Christian the Christian life, uh, Christianity, you know, you can define it many ways. But if you want to get down to the lowest common denominator of what Christianity is, what God had designed it to be, why God saves you in its infinite form, Christianity is about a work, a work that you do for God. Nothing more or nothing less. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, "...the study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, a workman, that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." It tells you that in that verse that if you're going to learn your Bible, if you're going to learn how to rightly divide your Bible, you're going to have to be a workman. You're going to have to work at it. Last week I talked about your body being like a house, God's temple, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And I showed you, you know, about the structure and building it and the wiring and the power coming in and all of that stuff. But a house will require two things. And your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And your house, spiritual house, will require two things. The first thing is you have to build it. And the Bible says in First Corinthians chapter 10 that in building your house, you need to be wise in what you do. He says in that verse, you need to be a wise master builder. And then the second thing you have to do, and if you, most of you young kids, even you young couples, don't all own your own house yet, but when you buy a house, you'll realize that the greatest thing that you have to do with that house after you get it, and it's yours, is you have to maintain it. And that takes work. You have to maintain your spiritual body after you get saved. And that takes work. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's how you maintain and maintenance your spiritual body after you build it the way God wants you to build it. In the word of God, the Bible is likened to a hammer. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, in, uh, in uh, Judges chapter 5, the word of God is likened to a nail you're going to find in Daniel chapter 2 that the Bible's likened to stones. And in Deuteronomy 32, the Bible's likened to rocks. Jesus is called the stone made without hands in Daniel chapter 2. He's called the rock in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, he's called the chief cornerstone in the building of God. Now, in your spiritual growth, in its simplest form, you know what you do? You recognize that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of everything in your life. In the spiritual building of God in Mount Zion, up there in heaven, Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the nation of Israel, he was the chief cornerstone in the building of the nation of Israel. They rejected it. And when they rejected it, the rock that God gave them, the cornerstone that God gave them to build their their nation on, you know what it became? It became the stumbling block to them. And in your life, in my life, it's the same way. When you build a building, you start with a cornerstone. And that cornerstone is is the place where all the other components of that building are tied into And in a spiritual sense, that cornerstone is Jesus Christ, and it's the day you got saved. Your spiritual growth is nothing more than recognizing the day you got saved, Jesus Christ was the spiritual cornerstone of your life, and then the rest of your spiritual life, everything you build, you build into that spiritual cornerstone. And when you don't, You know what happens to you? The same thing that happens to the nation of Israel. That cornerstone that God gave you to be the strength of your life becomes the stumbling block of your life. That's just the way it works. It's not hard. These are tools and materials you build something with. But it'll take work. When they built the temple in Solomon's time, the Bible says it took seven years to complete that. Your salvation in its simplest form is the fact that God saved you and he saved me to do a work for him. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says that he hath begun a good work in you, that's the day you got saved, and will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That's the rapture of the church. There's so many examples of this in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 8, you have the story there. It's a parable, really. And you have the parable of, of men who God, uh, down through history, uh, called to work and labor in his vineyard. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Now, most people don't know this because they never probably get to this level of the Bible. In your Bible... There are five distinct, different ways to get to the approximate time of the second coming of Christ. When Paul wrote to uh, his people and he said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brother, about the times and the seasons. I have no need to write unto you. He's expecting them to understand. Now, I'm not telling you that you can get the day and the hour and the time and the year. I know you can't do that. But that Bible doesn't want you to be caught unawares when the Lord comes back. And there's five, in the New Testament, there's five distinct different formats that you can go through that you will actually get a very close time associated when the Lord is coming back. And and this is one of them. And this is built on a 12-hour work schedule, which starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and runs to 6 o'clock in the evening, 12 hours. 6 o'clock in the morning in the Bible is called even. 6 o'clock in the evening in the Bible is called even. And it shows you that the, it's a 12-hour period based on another 12-hour period making 24-hour day and so forth. It's called the even. And the Bible says that he, he sends out workers, in the even, and there's a key to figuring this out. We don't. Uh, my purpose is not to lay this out to you in detail this morning, but there's a there's a key to all of these, and the key unlocks the time element. So he says he sends his first workers out uh, in in the morning at even. That'll be six a.m. in the morning when the first workers go out. Now, using our key <coughs> to unlock this. That'll that'll line up about 33 A.D. Uh, back in your history of the Bible. And then the Bible says the third hour, that'll be 9 o'clock in the morning. He sends in another group of workers. Using our key, that'll be around 500 A.D. or the beginning of the Dark Ages in history. Around 12 noon, around the, uh, uh, the next one is the sixth hour. He sends another group in. That'll be around 12 noon. And that'll bring us up using our key to around 900 or 1,000 A.D., right in the middle of the Dark Ages. He sends some more workers in in the ninth hour using our key. That'll bring us up to about 1,500, beginning of the Reformation. That'll be the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And then the fifth one is the 11th hour. And that'll bring us up to about 5 p.m. Just one hour away from the Lord coming back, and using our key, <laughs> that'll tell you and me that the last workers that God called to do a work in this vineyard went in in 1837, and then at 6 p.m. even 12 or even six o'clock, the Lord comes back, and it shows you that 12-hour work schedule. Now, that little parable tells you, when you get the keys, that the last workers went to work in his vineyard in 1837. Now, we live in 2015 today, and we now understand, according to that, (coughs) that we are the last of that shift, the last work shift, the very last group of that work shift, that's us. A couple of weeks ago when I was preaching about something else, I told you how that in Chicago they have the famed doomsday clock that they keep and they, they call it the, when it hits 12 midnight, they say the world's going to end. Now, in their mind, and I told you this a couple of weeks ago, they think some natural disaster, some meteor is going to hit the planet or some comet's going to smack into it. Or some natural disaster is going to wipe off life on planet Earth. We who know the Bible know that it's not a natural disaster we need to worry about. It's the Lord coming back we better be worried about. But I'm showing you that the world itself, the unsaved world, knows and feels something impending that's going to happen. It's always amazed me. The unsaved world can see it. They can set up a doomsday clock and they say that when this thing hits 12 midnight and they keep moving it with every world event. And the whole unsaved world feels that some impending doom is right around the corner. And they don't have a Bible. They're not even saved. But God's people who have the Word of God and are saved we're just living our lives like it's party, party, party. We feel no impending element that is going to impact your life in this world and change it all. And The unsaved world sees it. And I told you that time uh, a couple of weeks ago that they got the doomsday clock set at 1157. Three minutes in the unsaved estimation to the end of the world. God's people who have the Word of God and have these five things that are in front of them and many other things, we live our lives like we're going to live forever. It's incredible to me. Now, people who in a physical life are lazy and won't work will come to poverty. Many times they wind up being homeless. We deal with it every other week. We try to help people, and I've, I've been asked by people, why do you help people down there that won't help themselves themselves? You know, give them food, and give them this. And people have asked me that. Of course, they missed the point. I'm not going down there to feed them. I'm going down there to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Feeding is second thing. If The Red Cross goes and feeds them. The Salvation Army goes and feeds them. All the other organizations feed them. I go down to feed them, but my feeding them is a pretense to show them the gospel. And that's the difference. But in a spiritual application... For people who are claimed to be saved, people who won't grow and in time do a work for God, you realize that they come to the same spiritual poverty level? And just like the people next week that we're going to go down that are absolutely homeless, there's a lot of God's people today that are just as homeless spiritually. They have no church home. They have no place where their spiritual gas tank gets filled. They're homeless in every sense of the word. You know what brought them to that point? the poverty, and you know what got to that poverty? Their laziness in doing a work for God. See it all the time. See it all the time. And just like in society, when somebody wants to do any work or won't do any work, the rest of society that, that does the work has to pick up the load and bear the burden like we talked about. It's true in a spiritual sense. It's true in ministry. It's true in ch- every church. Somebody has to pick up the load when you and I as a Christian refuse to do a work for God. The work's going to get done. The work has to get done. But when you have a church of 500 people and only 40 or 50 people are doing it and a church load requires more than that, somebody's going to have to do double duty and pick up the load just the way that it is. And the simple truth about going back to learning the Bible that gets you to the work of God and its principles, it'll take work. It'll take hard work. Most people today will never do that, uh, you know. Uh, and in the, the end, uh, is spiritual pro- and they end up in spiritual poverty. And when the really tough times come, they have to rely on somebody else to carry them through. Just like the people uh, who, who won't work, when they get hungry, they have to look for that food truck to come back to give them something to eat because they choose not to work. And when a child of God refuses to work to learn the Bible and work to do the work of God, when the tough times come in their lives, they just stay and wait for somebody to come along with a bread truck to help them out of their problems. So the way it works. In 1920, the Great Depression came. And if you've seen pictures of that or newsreels going back at that time, a lot of men and a lot of women were completely out of work. It was a terrible time. And I know... I know they compare to the recession that we went in as the worst one and liken it to the Great Depression of the 20s. Let me tell you something. America has never seen a time as desperate as it was in the Great Depression in the 20s. And I've seen pictures of long, 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 long bread lines with men just standing in line for hours to come through to get bread. And yet I see God's people, Christianity, in the same spiritual bread lines. They've lost everything in life. They have no work. They have no spiritual home. They've lost everything spiritually. They're destitute by their own choosing, I might add. So when they get hungry, when they have a need, when they have a problem, the bread line forms. We're talking about the people ministry. Things that I want to take and teach you. You know why? Because the bread line never gets small in Christianity. There's always going to be people out there who have not done the work, Refused to do the work, now they're homeless spiritually, they're struggling spiritually. Our job is to help them and give them the bread that they need. Right now as a new Christian, and many of you are, I want to make this very clear. As a young Christian, you need to live off the spirituality of older Christians. Nothing wrong with that. That's absolutely okay. You just first get saved, and first couple of years of your life, you begin to uh, grow and begin to get there. There's nothing wrong with living off somebody else's spirituality. Not a thing. You'll get close to a woman or you'll go close to a guy, and, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll buddy up with them, and they'll help you, and you'll go to them for almost everything, and uh, there'll be every your phone will call them maybe four or five times a day or whatever. That is absolutely okay. Absolutely Okay. But at some point, at some point, you need to establish your own spirituality. At some point, you need to stand on your own two feet. I'm not giving you a time frame because everybody's different. I'd certainly say by being five years uh, in it, you ought to be on your spiritual feet. You ought to be, on, you ought to be taking somebody else at that point and helping them. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and here's a verse that is misused all the time. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. You know, now that verse is always used to teach somebody that you have to work for your salvation. You know, and they use that all the time, and they just simply can't read. First of all, these people are already saved. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to saved people, and he's telling them, hey, look, God has a work that he wants to do in you. He saved you, Philippians 1 6. He started that work, and now you... Now that you're saved, have to take the word of God, the church, the Holy Spirit of God is inside you, and you work through the things in your life, and you work through, and you work out your own salvation, because salvation at the end of the day is for one purpose, a work. Verse 13, for it is God that worketh in you. Look at the verse, verse 12, Paul says, I was once with you, his presence, but now you're on your own. And there needs to be a time in your Christian life that you stand on your own, that you don't have to run to somebody every time you have a problem. And I'm, again, if you're a young Christian or you're an older Christian and you're doing it, I'm not telling you not to do it. If you're a young Christian, I know in most cases you will grow to that point. But if you're old Christian and you're still struggling, my encouragement to you is to get the help that you need to get to that point where you can be laboring for God as a Christian. You have to work to learn the Bible. I wish there was an easy route, an easy way to do it, but there's not. You have to work. You have to put in the time. There's no fast track to it. There's no set of cassettes. There'll be some things out there that will maybe uh, help you get to where you want to faster, but there's nothing that will take the place of you just doing the work. I've taken through my teachings and the website and the things that we've written back there, I've taken the labor of 40 some years of my life that I've learned and I've put it in a fashion that will help you learn it easier, help you to find things quicker and help you pick things up quicker. But at the end of the day, that's all I can do for you. You still have to do the work. You have to work to build a relationship with God. If you're married here today or you have a serious boyfriend and a girlfriend issue, uh, you know that uh, that relationship just didn't happen. You had to work at it. And after you get married, you really have to work at it. It's something that the rest of your life you have to work on. And when you build a relationship with God, it takes work. You do the work within your own salvation so you can do the work of God that he has in you that he wants to accomplish. And when you do the work, Psalms 12, 11, when you till the ground, when you sow the seed, then you get the satisfaction in life that only can come from the word of God. He that telleth his land shall be satisfied, the Bible says. He's satisfied by bread, the bread of life. John, John chapter nine, verse four, Jesus said, I must do the work of him that sent me. And then he says, work for the night is coming that no man can work. You have to do it now. I think one of the greatest examples of this is found in the book of Exodus. I think the book of Exodus is probably one of the most premier books in the Bible for a young Christian. And I'm not saying just reading it through and getting the meat of it. I'm saying stepping back and looking at it. The book of Exodus is probably the only book in the Bible that I know of that chapter by chapter, or in some cases, sections by sections of that book, will show you the whole Christian life from the day from before you got saved <clears throat> to the day you got saved and then put every event in your life just the way that it needs to be. All around the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. It starts out by showing that Israel, down in Egypt. Egypt, the type of the world. Under a hard taskmaster, Pharaoh, a type of the devil. It's a picture of you and I before we were saved. The bondage, the burden that we were under. The absolute entrapment of of this world, Egypt. And how it did nothing good for us. And its only desire was to crush us and to kill us and to make us slaves. But Israel cried out, didn't they? When they cried out, God heard their cry. And God sent him a deliverer, Moses. Moses is a type of Christ in the Bible. And it's just like you and Israel and me, when we were under the oppression of the world, we cried out and God sent us a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That deliverer comes down to them, Moses. He goes and contends with the devil, Pharaoh. And then in Exodus chapter 12, he leads them out. You know how they get let out? By the blood of the Lamb. You know how you get out of the bondage of the world? You get out through a deliverer by the blood of a Lamb. And then after that, chapter 13. Talks about their 14, 15, 16. Talks about their sanctification. Talks about their prayer life. A chapter on, on, the, on their baptism. It's incredible. But when you get to chapter 16 probably the single greatest chapter in the Bible in the events of things in a Christian's life about the Word of God. And it's an incredible thing. The children of Israel and you and me. When they leave Egypt, head for the Promised Land. It's a picture of you and I getting saved and then heading for the blessings and the things of God. But now they're in what the Bible calls the wilderness of sin. And when they get into that wilderness of sin, the water's bitter. There's nothing to eat. There's no food. And it's a picture of a child of God. Once they get saved, the world now has nothing for you ever again. What you used to drink has lost its sparkle. What you used to eat doesn't taste good anymore. But now you're in a dilemma. Because you're here in the wilderness of sin with nothing to eat. Oh, what did God do? God supernaturally brought food to them in the form of manna. That manna is a picture of the word of God. God's supernatural gift to you and me in our wilderness journey. They're told to gather that bread every morning. And also when you read the story, you'll find that the people that loved it went out and gathered it, but they always had the mixed multitude with them, didn't they? Numbers chapter 11, other places in the Bible, the mixed multitude were those who got us, they went along with them, but they got as far away from what God was doing as they could. And you know what? Every church will have its element of mixed multitude. And just like the mixed multitude back in Exodus chapter 16 and the mixed multitude in any church today, the mixed multitude despised the manna. They wanted to go back to Egypt where they could have the garlic and the leeks and the melons and the fishes. They forgot about the hard bondage and the burden of baking bricks in Pharaoh's brick furnace. They forgot about the burden and the and the whippings and the beatings and the long hours. Boy, that's such a picture of God's people who forget what God has done for them and then want to go back to the world. What was gathered when they went out to get it had to be used that day. The manna was to be eaten. He never never intended them to get a bowl of manna and put it on the coffee table so everybody could see they had a bowl of manna. He intended them to take that manna, pick it up, to eat it. And when they ate it, they got the spiritual strength that they need to endure their wilderness journey. And you and I are in a wilderness journey. This whole world not my home. I'm just traveling through. My world is, my home is laid up somewhere beyond the blue, as the old song says. It was food for strength. It was food for their existence in a hostile land. Now, As a supernatural gift, God brought the bread, the manna, right to where they were. They didn't have to go find the Dead Sea Scrolls in some cave someplace. They didn't have to go to some monastery in Sinai Peninsula or the Vaticanus someplace. No, no, no. When God brought the supernatural bread of life to sustain them, he brought it right to where they were. And you have in your hand today the word of God, the manna from heaven that God dropped right down and dumped in your lap. Praise the Lord. Pass the ammunition. (laughs) Bible says that it came down like snow. And while they slept at night, when they woke up in the morning, it was all around the camp. That's a picture of the church age. Church age is a picture of the night. And the church age picture is the fact that while we were in the church age, God brought that manna right down to where we were. And in the morning, when they got up, the first thing they did was put back that tent flap, and there around them everywhere was the word of God just laid out right there for them. And that brought on a decision And every day of your life, you have to face the same decision. Because once they were up, God brought it down, and there it was. The decision was, am I going to pick it up and eat it, or am I going to trample it under my feet and just go on with my day? And that's the decision every one of us make every day of our lives. Every day of our lives. Verse chapter 17, I think is probably the key verse in the whole chapter. And it simply says when he brought the manna, supernatural food from God, he put it around the tent and there it was right there. The Bible simply says in verse 17, and some gathered more and some gathered less. What a statement. That statement rang true back in Exodus and it rang true right today. God gave you the manna from heaven. He brought it right to you. It's the spiritual strength that you need. And some of you will gather more, and some of you will gather less. It's incredible. But the thing that I wanted you to see is even though God brought it to them, He brought it supernaturally right to where they were. It didn't fall in their mouth, they had to labor to pick it up. They had to get a basket, get a pot, get a bag. And they had to go out there and stoop over and labor to pick up that bread so they would have it to eat. It took work to get it. And just like today, some of God's people will gather more and some will gather less. Now the last part of chapter 12, says this. But he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. And going back to our companion verse in twenty eight nineteen, 19, we want to get the whole scope here. It says, but he that followeth after vain people shall have poverty enough. Now that's an old English word. Old English phrase, poverty enough. We, 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 that's more than you can handle. We use it in a different fashion today. When something keeps coming that we don't like, we say, "Enough already!" See, that's what they're saying. Poverty enough. Poverty enough. H- have you ever noticed? And, and this is a phenomenon that, you know, if unless you're paying attention and really keeping score, you, you don't probably see. Have you ever noticed the polarizing effect that the Bible has on people? It's incredible. You ever notice in, in our world, we have people who, oh, I don't like God, I hate God, oh, I love God, and somewhere in between, well, I kind of love God, or today I do, but tomorrow I won't, and all these things. But you ever notice in the Bible, that is never found in the Bible? You realize that in Proverbs, it's a wise man and a foolish man, and there's never anything in between. You notice in the book of Proverbs, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wicked man. And a righteous man. Never anything in between. In the book of Proverbs, it's a whorish woman, strange woman, and a virtuous woman. Nothing in between. That's incredible to me. One of the things that we all have to work through, and many times on a daily basis, is with God, it's either light or darkness. We like to be in the gray. You know, with God, there is no gray. And spiritual lazy people, you ever notice how they all hang out with other spiritual lazy people? It forms a contrast, just like the book of Proverbs. Christians on fire and doing a work will always hang out with people like they are. And people with understanding in churches, they'll see that and they'll say, oh, that's, 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 that's a click. You're absolutely right. You get an A. In every church, there's two clicks. There's God's click and there's a devil's click. It just works that way. You want to go click, 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 click in the middle. There is no click, click, click in the middle. It's either... Light or darkness, you're either on fire for the Lord and trying to do or want to do, or you're making your way to move that way, or you're just lazy and you just don't, you want to come to church, you want to have a fun time, but you don't really want to take anything serious when it comes to God. That old book divides you and me out, brother. I don't know why you'd miss that when you start reading your Bible in Genesis chapter 1. You don't go three verses that in chapter 4 he said, God the light the light from the darkness and it never gets back together. I always tell and warn you and tell you, people don't listen to me, but I always try to tell you and warn you that you will become who you associate with. My old grandmother used to say in the old adage, birds of a feather flock together. It's hilarious to me over the years I've had parents that 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 had kids that were uh, how do you say worthless, lazy in every aspect of spirituality. And it's all and you know, and as parents, and I understand this, as, as parents, you know, we we it's it's always easier for us when we look at our children and our children fail. It points a finger back to us. So it's always easier to blame our failure of our children on somebody else. I mean, that's just human nature. We all struggle with that. And one of the things as a parent you need to learn to deal with is whatever your kids do, it's what you train them to do. And, you know, I know every kid makes mistakes, and some kids will make terrible mistakes, and the way you see the training is when they really screw it up, how they respond to you in trying to get them back on track. That's really the key. But they'll always blame the laziness of their children or the problems with their children on other worthless kids that he or she hangs out with. That they, through that influence, made them that way. And, And honestly, the parents, many times, they never have a clue. They never get it. They never see that your child chose the bums that they hang out with because he likes the bums that he hangs out with. Nobody put handcuffs on him and said, go with this worthless person. He looked at that worthless person. He looked at the alternative and he said, I want to be like that worthless person. And you know what? In time, he becomes like that worthless person. And by the way, before you put your name in for a mother of the year, who taught them that value system of choosing friends? I guess that's somebody else's fault too. You talk about a lack of understanding. In our passage today, you see the great contrast of life, the polarizing effect of the Word of God. Proverbs 12, verse 11 says, A man void of understanding. And in Proverbs twenty eight nineteen it says, A man with poverty enough. Here's a person whose life is endless maze of heartache, disappointment, broken relationships, shattered dreams, completely dysfunctional. Or the contrast to it, Proverbs 12, 11, a man who is satisfied with bread. And as Proverbs 28, 19 says, a man who has plenty of bread. You see that simple contrast? Then this Proverbs is very simple in a physical sense and in a spiritual application. Real satisfaction only comes from the Word of God in your life and plenty of it. And you have plenty of it because you did the work to get it. You labored to pick it up. Ever notice how the word, world will always take the word bread and associate it with physical money? Man, I ain't got no bread today. Hey, you got any bread? Yeah, I got some bread, man. You see, that's a counterfeit. That's taking what will never satisfy you and putting it into a context of something that will satisfy you. And all the money in the world will never satisfy you. There's only one bread that will satisfy you when you get plenty of it, and that is the bread of life. That's the comfort of the real bread of life that will fill you up and give you plenty. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I don't even know if they have it today because I never paid attention, but they had what we called Wonder Bread. And Wonder Bread used to have a slogan. It says, and it was supposed to be better than all the other bread. Now, I probably wasn't, but it was a marketing tool. And it said, Wonder Bread, building strong bodies 12 ways. Little did I know, that the real wonder bread is that book. And salvation is of the Jews, and that book will build you through the nation of Israel strong 12 ways. Salvation is of the Jew, the 12 tribes. The wonder bread that God has for us. Now look at verse 12. The wicked desireth the net of evil men, but the root of the righteous yieldeth fruit. It says, the wicked desireth the net of evil men. Now, I'll just give you this doctrinally in the Bible. You'll find this a lot in Psalms. You'll find it in Ezekiel, probably Jeremiah, some of the other places. Wherever you find the word net, you'll want to watch it because most of the time it's going to be connected and give you the context of the tribulation period in the Antichrist when he sets a net, a trap for the nation of Israel. Many times it's like it is setting down to a net for a bird. And of course, in the analogy, the net is the Antichrist trap, the bird is the nation of Israel. You just want to watch that. A net to snare you. And it shows that the world system is made up of wicked men that simply want to set a trap for you in everything they do. A trap that will trick you and get something from you. A net. A net to snare you. And in life, If you see any example of this, and I could give you many, but for the sake of time this morning, I get the greatest example in America is just the America's form of advertising. It appeals to the lust of the eyes. It appeals to the basic covetousness that we all have inside in our own nature. It appeals to us to focus on what we don't have and never being satisfied with what we do have. It's this net that spreads more lies snares more people than anything else. You see it in the TV commercials. You get a two-hour movie you want to watch, and they edit the movie. You know why they edit the movie? Because they got a half-hour commercial in it that they break up. And all through that movie, they see those commercials you have to endure to watch something, and they want you to buy what they have. You just hear it on the radio. You read it in newspapers and magazines. You see it in the billboards along the highway. (laughs) <laughs> makes you think that you can't live without having one of these. So you spend your money on something that you really don't need. Now, you know the billboard down around the freeway? They run anywhere from 2000 to $3,000 a month. That sounds really expensive. When's the last time you saw a blank one? You know why people do it? Because they work. When we sit here and watch the Super Bowl every year and have a great time, everybody vies for the, for the commercial time. You know they spend millions of dollars for a 30-second ad during the Super Bowl? Millions of dollars, millions of dollars for a 30-second spot. You know why? Why they'll do that? Because they know people watch it. And you come away from a Super Bowl or come away from watching television or whatever, and you think that you just can't have a good time without old Bud showing up. Budweiser. Good friends, good times, and low and brow. You see, it's the net of deception. It's the net of deception. It deceives women into thinking that a certain kind of lipstick will make you prettier. Or a certain hair color, changing your hair. Now you're a new person. You know, you may people say, oh, I didn't recognize you with your hair. But I'll tell you what, you can do all you want. Your dog still knows who you are. <laughs> all the time. I've dressed up for Halloween before and tried to scare my dogs, put on the ugliest costume I could, walk downstairs, they're both snoozing on the thing, and I'll say, hey! They look up, tail wagon, come down, they know who I am. It's the, it's the net of deception that you think a perfume will make you more irresistible. Or cologne will make you more desirable. So they call it passion. Obsession. <laughs> and you actually think, you deceive, buy this, and everybody, you, you, everybody will see you as Passionate. I've had women think that a new black dress will make them look thinner. Oh. <laughs> I've had guys, well, I wear black because it makes me look thinner. Hey, that doesn't make you... Hey, if you want to do something at worst, call David Copperfield. He makes 747 disappear. <laughs> On your computer you get trapped in some of the most ungodly stuff you ever saw in your life. Terrible bad doctrine, any conspiracy theory you ever want. I saw last week that Caitlyn Jenner is really an alien from another planet. I kind of believe that one. All the filth of this world in your own home 24, some people stay on that computer 24 hours a day, and they, you can get on there and you can buy stuff. You can do this. You can do anyone. And it's all a deception and it's all a trap. That's why, if you ain't figured it out, they call it the internet. You see it in Christianity. I talk about it all the time. You think that building a $100 million church building will make you a better church? You really do. You think when you get this and you get the sound system and you get this over here and this over here and they got all these great things in here that wow, we are now really a great church. It's a deception. It's a net of deception. Because the wicked desireth the net of evil men. The net of deception, that waits to snare all of us and deceive us. Into thinking that the things of life will really satisfy us when the only real satisfaction comes from bread and plenty of it. That you worked hard to get a labor of God and a work of God. You know, I, I thought about this last week and I saw it in some of your eyes, and I know, you know, last week we had the we had the trap shoot on Saturday, which was an all-day event. Then we turned right around, had church that Sunday morning, and had the anniversary Sunday, and that was an all-day event. And then, you know, and then Monday morning, you're right back to work again. And, you know, and I know I can't, I, I, I know I saw it in many of your faces, and I know I felt it too. I was absolutely wore out. I was just absolutely spent. All day Saturday, plus of everything else I had to do, get ready for Sunday and all the other things, and then all day Sunday, and then all of that stuff, I was wore out. But you know what? I thought to myself, I'm really tired, but it's a good tired. My mom used to have a saying when I'd hurt my leg and I was always not the best kid at doing chores around the house. When I'd hurt my leg and I'd go in and I'd say, Mom, I really hurt my leg. Her standard answer is, well, you didn't hurt it doing anything for me. (laughs) I love it. Mom, I really hurt my We didn't do it. It feels better already, Mom. You got to get a tent and go on the road. You know, there's things that we wore out with doing the world we used to do, wasn't it? And I know we get tired sometimes, get wore out. But, you know, there's something about getting wore out doing a work for the Lord that just doesn't compare with being tired of getting to work for the world. I thought about that. Thought about that a lot. Now look at the last part of verse 12. But the root of the righteous yieldeth fruit. Now in life, as in anything, it will all go back to what you're rooted in. And here again, we have another great contrast. The Bible says in First Timothy chapter six verse 10, "For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." Hebrews 12:15 says, "Look and diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, let any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled." Now getting your roots down in some things is definitely not a good thing. Roots go down deep. Roots are always under the surface. Nobody else can see them. And 6 Timothy 6.10, this talks about uh, the love of money, covetousness being the root problem. You see the example that he's probably make a reference here is back in Joshua chapter 7 with Achan who stole the gold and the wedge of silver in the Babylonian garment. And the Bible says back there in Joshua 7:21, when I saw them, I coveted them. And then he takes them and he hides them in the tent floor so nobody can see it. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 talks about bitterness, the root problem. You know what the root problem of bitterness? Unforgiveness. Not being able to forgive others. that it all come because of the roots that we put down deep in our life. And then you have two more verses about being rooted in the right thing that form our contrast. Ephesians three sixteen and 17, that I would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Colossians 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. As we have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. But lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Getting rooted in the things of God in your life, rooted and grounded. You have to root yourself, get those roots down deep. You have to work at doing that. You have to be a wise master builder. Build yourself a workman. He says in Second 2 Timothy 2.15, a workman would need not to be ashamed. That being ashamed is the judgment seat of Christ. And then notice the four dangers for a Christian in a church. Philosophy, vain deceit, traditions of men and rudiments of the world. And today in Christianity and churches, this is what has replaced the word of God. Now, you know, in a practical sense, dealing with everyday problems, when we talk about the struggles that we all go through, and there's people who develop strongholds in their life, and they get them in their life, we're simply talking about roots, a wrong root system. You take a tree and plant it in your backyard after two or three years, you can pretty easily dig that tree up and get it out of there. You decide to move it, take it out. But you take that tree and put it in there and you wait for 10 years, 15 years and try to dig it up, you'll dig up the whole neighborhood. The roots have down, down deep. They've attached themselves to other roots, to rocks, to foundations, and you will never get it up out of the ground. And in the Bible, there's a definite process to breaking strongholds. You don't deal with stronghold like you deal with everything else. Stronghold is about not just dealing with the surface stuff. Now, in your garden variety problem that you go through in life, we deal with it on the surface. When you got a stronghold, you got a root problem. And in breaking any stronghold, it's going to take three things. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a biblical process to get it done. Somebody says, what is the greatest advice that you could give someone that's got a stronghold? The greatest thing you could ever learn about a stronghold is simply this. It took you a lot easier to get into it than it ever does to get out of it. While you were getting into it, it was fun. While you were getting into it, it was pleasurable. You enjoyed it. But then there comes a time in your life where it starts to take an effect on you, a drastic effect. Now you want to change it. And it's like going out in my backyard, I got a tree that is that big around, and through the erosion of the water, I can see those roots going out to my neighbor's house, up the back to my house. I look at that and I think to myself, how in the world would you ever dig this up? Somebody says, well, I struggle with my stronghold and I can't get over it. What do I, you know what the greatest thing you ought to do when you struggle through a stronghold? The greatest thing you ought to learn, and maybe this is why God lets you go through it. Well, because you ain't smart enough to pick it out. The greatest thing you will learn about this stronghold will keep you from ever getting into another stronghold. One, how easy was it to get in it, but how hard it was to get out of it. If that don't ever keep you from getting into another one, you're in trouble. And let me say, I preach about strongholds and talk about them. Uh, They're a very bad thing, and they are. But here's a contrast for you. Not all strongholds are bad. You can have a stronghold of the world in your life. That is bad. Or you can have a stronghold of God in your life. That's good. The one you get by following vain people and no work for God and leads to poverty through your void of understanding And you get a stronghold in your life and you get caught in the net. The other one, you get the book through being a workman and you grow. You build yourself as a wise master builder. You get plenty of bread. You get satisfaction. You get understanding and you get rooted in the word of God and it becomes a stronghold in your life. Sometimes you don't have time to do it. Go back to 2 Samuel 23, 14. There's a story there right in the middle of David and his mighty men of valor. And the Bible says that David's in a hold with all of his mighty men of valor. And down in the valley is where all the Philistines are. And that hold where he's at is right next to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And in that hold, they have the advantage of going down and whacking the Philistines anytime they want. But the Philistines don't have the advantage to ever come up and whack them. You know why? It's God's stronghold. And when you build the right stronghold in your life through the right work, the right bread, and the right things you put in your life, you're free to whack the world, but the world never gets back to whack you. Look at the last part of verse 12 again. But the root of the righteous yieldeth fruit. The, root, the roots of a saved man yieldeth fruit. Why? Because the Bible says in Proverbs eleven twenty is a tree of life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Now, after all that we've said, and all that we've talked about, at the end of the day, the lives of real the the, the, the end of the day, the real satisfaction for a child of God will be simply looking back and seeing what you did with the salvation that God gave you. I, I, can't, I can't emphasize that enough. In Luke chapter 19, you have the parable of the pounds, where every man got one pound from the Lord. The Lord comes back and the guy says, Lord, you gave me one pound. I invested wisely, got you ten. The other guy says, Lord, I got one pound you gave me. I just kept it, didn't do anything with it. Looking at the work of God in your life and what it really has produced. There is no greater satisfaction. You can have all the money in the world. You can have all the things in the world. You can have all the friends in the world. You can have everything that the world offers. There will be no satisfaction completely in your life until you have the work of God in your life that you can look back and you can see what you did for the Lord based on what He did for you. And I'm not talking about your life being perfect and not having some issues and not having some problems. Don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about a consistency of a work simply taking what God has given you and reproducing it in others. This is the big reason why God's people, if you ever noticed, again, just by observation, people who never really do anything for God, you ever notice about 50, 60 years of age, they start to have all kinds of issues? There's no satisfaction, there's no work, there's no real bread in their life. Now they start having physical issues. Now they aren't having psychological issues. Now they start having spiritual issues. Now they start having emotional issues. Now see, they've been saved now for 30, 40, sometimes 50 years in some cases. And if they really stopped along the way and really understood what God did for them and what they haven't done for God, they'd have a heart attack. There's simply no defining work of God in their life. Their finances are a mess. Their children are a mess. Their marriage is a mess. Their lives are a mess. There's absolutely no reproducing of anything spiritual in the lives for over thirty years. And now those roots have went down and attached themselves to many foreign objects underneath the surface. Now there's no joy. Now there's no happiness. There's certainly no satisfaction. There's no bread. And most of all, there's no fruit. And it all goes back to the fact that there's no work. The reason God saved us. Philippians 1, 6, God began a good work in you, and then someplace along the line, you went on strike. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Listen, when you and I got saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes in and seals us until the Lord comes back. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. He lives inside of me and He sees all that I cast my eyes on. He understands all the thoughts that I allow in my mind. Psalms 139 verse 2 says, He understandeth my thoughts afar off endures every bad decision I make. He's forced to look at things that are absolutely against everything that is his holiness. He is forced to hang out with a crowd that I choose and hear his name being drugged through the mud and terrible things said about him by his name. He's forced to taste the beer, to smell the smoke To experience the drugs that we put into our bodies. God put him inside me to do a work, but we drag him through the sewers of life. But where I go and what I do, he was put in me for a work. But he has to endure my laziness, my lackadaisical lifestyle that I choose to pursue. He wants to reproduce himself through me, my children, my family, my friends, and wherever he sends me. But he's forced to watch as I destroy everything he wants to accomplish in my life through my lackadaisical, workless, thankless attitude. And it grieves him. Do you get that? It grieves him, Ephesians 4.30. Galatians 2.21, Paul says, I will not frustrate the grace of God. That grieving over 20, 30 years will manifest itself into many areas of my life now. My physical life, my health goes. I've become an emotional basket case. Depression and Anxiety. My spiritual life. There's no victory. There's no no completeness. There's no satisfaction. There's no joy. There's no nothing. You go to your doctor. He sends you to a shrink. Shrink. You tell him, well, you know what? I have good days and bad days, and some days I cry, and some days I'm happy, and some days I'm not happy, and I just go back and forth. He has no idea of 20, 30 years you've grieved the Holy Spirit of God that's in you. So he says you're bipolar. They used to call it manic depression because a bipolar person has mood swings from high to low. Manic is high, depression is low. And they swing back and forth. They've upgraded it now, you're bipolar. Northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. Northern pole, south pole. Two different natures, two different mood swings flying back and forth. Uh, Years ago, I had the opportunity in a debate before a bunch of college kids. A lot of them were saved. But I debated this unsaved psychologist. She was a woman. And the teacher was a saved, and he set it up, and he, he, he wanted to give us both opening statements and then wanted to go back and forth about, I believe the Bible was the only solution to man. She thought that, that psychology, education, and all the junk that she had there was the way to go. It was a hilarious time. I got it on tape someplace. They videoed it. And so she gets up, and I opened my opening statement. I believe the Bible is the word of God. And I just, you know, I said, you know, we're, we're at opposite ends here. Uh, I said, we ourselves are, you know, at, at different ends. I believe the Bible. And I went through my deal, and she got up and went through hers. Somebody asked a question about bipolar Now, sometimes in life, when you get into these things, if you're smart enough, God just hands it to you on a plate. And you've got to be smart enough at that point and have the guts to take it and knock it out of the park. But she just delivered it to me. Somebody says, what about bipolar? Ask her, what about bipolar? And she says, she was trying to be so professional, yet down on their level, you know? And she says, that's an excellent question. Look at it this way. How many have ever been down to the Southern Hemisphere? About half the crowd had been someplace down there. She said, look at it this way. Very simple illustration. In the Northern Hemisphere, when you flush your toilet, it flushes left to right. When you go to the Southern Hemisphere and you flush your toilet, it goes the other way. Now think of that as bipolar The whole world goes left to right. But when you really have some problems, you start to go opposite to the real world. The job of psychology, the job is to me, is to always get us to going in the right direction. Like in the Northern Hemisphere, when you flush your toilet. Everybody applauded. Such a simple thing. She looked at me and and didn't say it, but looked at me and said, match that. I mean, I knew the body language. She didn't like me, and I didn't like her. If she was a little bit bigger, I'd beat her up in the parking lot afterwards. She looked at me, and she says, Pastor? Oh, I hate when they say that. Pastor? So I got up, and I said, that was a great illustration. I said, and she really proves my point. In the northern hemisphere, the toilet flushes left to right. In the southern hemisphere, it flushes right to left. Her way, you know what? Either way, you're still in the toilet. (laughs) My answer will get you out of the toilet. It's God's word. I really got a hand of applause on that one. I'll tell you what. She just sat down. In fact, she didn't have much fire the rest of the day. But either way, you're still in the toilet. So he puts you on drugs. Now he gives you Prozac. He gives you Zoloft, antidepressants. To calm you, to help you, sedate you, slow your depression down. And for 20, 30 years, you're a legalized drug addict. And you see, in one sense, they're right. Every Christian is bipolar. You have an old nature and a new nature. The old nature lives down south. The new nature lives up north. And they don't get along. And the more one you feed and hang out with is the one that dominates you. That's not hard to figure out. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And the Holy Spirit of God in you, it's simple. The Holy Spirit of God in you desires to live up north. You keep dragging him down south. That's all. That's all it is. And the work that God saved you for just never gets done. And after years of it, there's no coming back. The roots are down too deep. The strongholds are too oppressive. And yet the answer is so easy. The answer is simply plenty of bread. Saturate your mind with the word of God. Be saturated with a work for God. He that telleth the land shall be satisfied. He that telleth his land shall have plenty of bread. And I simply leave you with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 9 through 16. Our work for the Lord. This is a judgment seat of Christ. Look what it's built on. Look what it's based on. Somebody said one time, well, your church is all about work. Amen, brother, you bet it is. A work for him. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another build thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble. Verse 13. Every man's work, see that thing? Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by the fire. Know ye not that you are God's temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The judgment seat of Christ is about one thing. It's about a work that you did or a work that you didn't do. God saved you to do a work and labor in his field, his vineyard. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll find the two contrasts of Proverbs chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. One who wouldn't do the work, the other one uh, who, uh, one who would, did do the work, the other one who would not do the work. One was satisfied and filled with plenty, the other was destitute and homeless and in poverty. Titus 2 7 says, in all things, showing theirself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. And in Titus 3 8 says, This is a faithful saying, and I'll leave you with this. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. Thank you for all you've done for us and all that you've given us. Thank you for...